0: Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. So it gives me a great pleasure in this evening's podcast to introduce Professor David Guzal. He's a world-renowned pioneer in the area of pediatric sleep medicine. He's currently the Chairman of Child Health at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, USA, and the Physician-in-Chief of the Missouri University Children's Hospital. He's published extensively with more than 750 papers in reputed scientific journals and more than 150 chapters and reviews, um, plus he's edited four major textbooks. So Dr. Zoll, thank you very much um, for uh, giving up uh, your time to chat uh, today. Can I maybe um, start uh, uh, by asking for a lot of parents' um, uh, understanding of this topic, um, why is sleeping children um, uh, different from uh, adults as far as the conditions such as sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea?
1: Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me in your program. And uh, hello to all the parents who are listening. I want to, I think that the most important element uh, that we need to remember is that uh, uh, the sleep needs of children are very different of those of adults. So uh, you are, uh, we're all familiar with the fact that a baby, uh, when they're born as an infant, uh, we need uh, many hours of sleep, uh, 14, 16, even though moms Uh, may sometimes uh, only remember all the time that they needed to wake up and uh, feed the baby or change the baby. And certainly uh, parents uh, will uh, remember those difficult uh, uh, periods uh, uh, because babies and infants have a different uh, time cycle of duration of what we call the sleep cycle. But if you take the total amount of sleep that a baby needs, uh, particularly during the early few months of life, uh, they need about 16 hours of sleep uh, for every 24 hours uh, of the day. So, which is very, very different from what a, <clears throat> a young adult or healthy adult uh, requires, which is about eight to nine hours on average, eight and a half hours being the real uh, median or average that has been quoted uh, by many, many studies. So if we really take that uh, as, as as a guide, then um, babies need to sleep three hours on, then they wake up because their capacity to feed and their metabolic rates are such that they need to feed much more often. And so this feeding cycle and sleep cycle, which are so short, start slowly, slowly extending themselves until at some point in time during the first or second year of life we see that they shift already to really the nocturnal pattern, like we are guided by light and so on, but globally they still need 14 hours, 12, 14 hours of sleep. And that continues throughout development until about mid-school or at the ages of eight, nine or 10, where actually the need for sleep is less. So so that means that during that period, and we are gonna get into, into a second of why that is so important, uh, the sleep need is very important to, to secure, one, growth. We, we grow very, very fast during that period of our lives. Uh, second, our brain is developing and reconstituting all, all throughout the, the growth period. And so these two require then a lot of energy. And in order to process all of this, we need a lot of sleep. And so sleep fosters deep sleep or the, what we call Delta sleep, which is when we see very slow waves in the electroencephalographic or in the brain waves um, are, is a signal in which the brain is now producing a hormone that is very important, growth hormone. So we need a lot of that deep sleep as children in order to grow better and develop our bodies. And that is a period in which our metabolism is also engaged in that process of building the blocks of our bodies. At the same time, um, many of these features, both the dream sleep, what we call rapid eye movement sleep, or delta sleep, this metabolic sleep, are essential for the the connections between brain cells and all the wiring that happens in our brain to actually form new, new connections take away and prune, what we call pruning of these old connections that are not as useful, establish memories, do learning, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see that during that period of time where we need so much sleep, our, we anything that would disturb sleep can have a very adverse consequence. The second period in which, um, somewhat paradoxically, we need more sleep, after mid-school comes adolescence. This is yet again a period of very, very accelerated growth. We see them grow during summers. It seems almost impossible. Sh- they had long pants uh, when the summer started and the school finished. And then within three months, wow, their, their pants are knees, right? The, and were, oh, my God, we need to go and buy them a new pair of pants. How do they do this? They need all these new shoes because the shoes are too small, et cetera. Well, uh, the brain is also undergoing major changes because of hormones and because of this. So both, again, this period of time requires that adolescents, as opposed to middle schoolers, will actually need a much greater period of sleep, an accelerated, again, growth hormone is playing. But this time it comes with a twist. And the twist is that they become jet-lagged, chronically jet-lagged. And so because of hormones and many other things, their clocks get shifted to as if they were living in earlier times. So if you live in Melbourne, suddenly you're now living in uh, Perth, uh, Mm -hmm. if you want an example for Australia. So the same as in the United States, you live in New York and now your child, your adolescent child is living in Los Angeles. And so they will want to go to sleep much later and they don't want to wake up at the usual times and therefore they will want to work much later, which is incompatible with the work schedules, incompatible with most of the school schedules. And so this creates a very significant problem. So so you can see that before we actually even get to young adulthood, uh, we have gone through two periods, at least very long periods of growth and, and development in which sleep is very intensely needed. You need much many more sleep hours, and you need and you need that for both growth, growth of the body, but also growth of the mind, the intelligence, the memory, the intellectual capacity, and everything else and those are of course, periods of vulnerability, in other words, if something disrupts sleep and sleep being disrupted may lead to consequences that are not necessarily the consequences that you would want to see in your child because as as parents or as pediatricians, what we want is not only to raise healthy children, but we want them to become healthy and productive adults. And so that is a conundrum that obviously we need to use sleep as one of the pillars of life and not see sleep as a expendable function, but more a, a very critical and crucial and cardinal function for everything that we do.
0: And um, can I then lead on from uh, that? Uh, if parents suspect problems uh, in their child's sleep uh, behavior, etc., cetera, uh, how uh, would they get an accurate diagnosis of, of sleep apnea in their children?
1: So uh, this is a very important. So first of all, um, uh, let's take a look at what happens if um, you have disrupted sleep. Uh, it happens for a variety of reasons. You could, uh, for example, uh, live next to an airport. Okay, and every plane landing or taking off will create a lot of noise. Uh, you live in a very noisy environment. Uh, you have in a, uh, by a train station with trains moving in and out by a freeway. So this is what we call noise pollution. And noise pollution has been linked to a variety of diseases cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, uh, Alzheimer's, it's cancer. So you can see that even perturbations in chronic life of the quality and the depth of your sleep can have tremendous consequences even in adults. So uh, now let's go to children. Okay, so what could be disrupting sleep? Well, first, if they don't sleep in what we call in a favorable environment of sleep, Uh, putting them in a very noisy environment, in a place where there is too much light, all these other elements, if the quality of their sleep is not very good, that can have consequences. There may be subtle consequences. Um, But if you, for example, snore, um, so snoring, and we're going to get into it in a second, I will explain what could cause snoring. So snore is uh, an indicator, a sound indicator of uh, being having some degree of difficulty of, of to breathe, okay? Uh, we should not snore at all. Um, but there's a lot of people and a lot of children that, that snore. And one of the major reasons um, is because tonsils and adenoids, which are lymphadenoid tissues within the upper airway, they grow for a variety of reasons, pollution, viruses, just uh, infections, et cetera, all of these allergies And all of these can lead to these these tissues to grow. But also, we may be born with a little bit of a smaller mandible or may have some of the bones of our face not to grow the, the, the right way. So for all these reasons, our upper airway, the conduit to the lungs, may be a little tight, a little crowded. That explains also why... Children, when they're obese, have the same issue of snoring. And in fact, there are many, many times over uh, the risk of having snoring and to have sleep disorders of breathing uh, when they're uh, in the process of sleeping. So snoring is a sign. It doesn't tell you that there's a problem. All it's telling you, hey, you are having a little bit more difficulty breathing, okay? Now, some kids do very well with it, but the majority will have times during their sleep that they need to wake up in order to catch a breath. When we go to sleep, our drive to breathe is reduced. Uh, our, the amount of effort that we put to breathe is reduced. The muscles relax. And particularly doing rapid eye movement, that dream sleep, we all of us become in a way paralyzed except for some muscles of our, of our breathing. And so during that time, that relaxation may lead to a a relatively tight airway that normally during wakefulness we can compensate now is too small and therefore does not allow for enough air to go to the lungs. So now you have what we call an obstructive apnea, or that means that you have no airflow going to the lungs, or you have a, a, a relatively reduction in the amount of air what that? What does that cause? Well, it causes, first of all, that the levels of oxygen in your blood, in the blood of the child or the adult, will not be good. It manage, means that the carbon dioxide will go up, which is also not very good. It has consequences. And then in order to resolve that problem, because you don't want to stay like this for a long time, you're going to wake yourself up. So what are the three things that have happened now? You're working harder to breathe. Your levels of the blood gases, in other words, carbon dioxide and oxygen levels are now not very good, and now you need to wake yourself up. That means that you have disrupted your quality of sleep, and instead of having the deep, high-quality sleep or the dream sleep that you need, which is essential for brain development and many other things, you're not getting that quality of sleep. And so the brain will suffer. Many other systems in the body will suffer particularly in children that are during those growth periods, both the adolescent or the young, the very young children that are undergoing those growth. The brain is maturing, is developing all of this. All of that may be affected and therefore manifest. So we are telling the parents, if your child, if you pay attention to your child and you hear snoring, then look for other signs that something is taking a toll on your child. That's what we call the snore plus. You snore. And there's something else. So let's talk about these things. What could be the plus? Well, the plus is your child is tired in the morning but they wake up. No child should be tired in the morning and feel grumpy. Uh, why, why, if you slept wonderful, the children should be happy waking up. And so if you have a very grumpy child, very difficult to arouse, if you have a child who is having, the teachers are telling you they have difficulty paying attention in class, they're becoming hyperactive and I'll get back to the hyperactivity for a second after in a second Uh, if you have if they complain of headaches for example when you have elevated carbon dioxide you have dilation of the vessels and that causes a headache it will go away after a few hours but a child waking up and says mommy I have a headache and you hear this one time and the second time and the third time You should be worried that maybe, and and the child snores, something is not right. They may wake up in the middle of the night with a nightmare. They may have more night terrors. So if you see a lot of nightmares, the child wakes up with a nightmare or night terror or sleepwalking more often then you know, uh, those are things that should alert you, particularly if they snore, that something is not right. Let's say that the child has bedwetting after the age of four or five for uh, boys, or after the age of three in girls, they should be dry. And if they're not, and they continue to have it, and you hear them snore, maybe there's a connection. And the reason is that if you are so sleep disrupted that you every time that you're asleep, you want to keep asleep, then when you have those signals from the bladder that should wake you up and allow the child to go to bathroom well no way i'm going to wake up i i need my sleep because i can't breathe and so i better keep as much sleep as i can so i it's okay if i do it in bed and you know then whenever i wake up i can call mommy to change the diaper to change the pajamas to change the bed the, the bed sheets and everything else so those are all very important signals Uh, but more serious ones. Uh, Let's say that you're in school and you were doing very well and in kindergarten, your child was doing wonderful, but now first grade, now the grades are not very good and you're having difficulty with learning and you're having behavioral issues and you're having misbehaviors in school or you're becoming aggressive or you don't care as much and you're not playful as before. These changes in learning or in behavior should alert you that something, and the child snores, that something is not right. So I've given you a whole set of um, indicators that snoring with some of these may translate into a child not suffering from a condition that we call sleep apnea. Now, why are we talking about hyperactivity or uh, ADHD-like attention deficit hyperactivity behaviors. Well, let's go back to the normal child, the completely healthy child. And now it's evening, evening hours, uh, I don't know, 7, 8 p.m. The child was happy all day. And after dinner, if you see that, you will immediately know when your child is sleeping because they become wired. They start running around, doing all sorts of things, not listening to the parents. Becoming sometimes emotionally very unstable. They start fighting with your brother with sister, brother with brother. They start bringing, you know, and children, when they're sleepy, they become hyperactive. It's their way to stay awake. They fight staying awake by moving. And when you move and when you don't pay attention, it means that your area of the brain that is called the frontal brain or the executive brain, that area is become less controlled, less controlled, because sleep is suppressing that area. So all the normal mechanisms in the brain that allow for the child to be well-behaved, well-controlled, to sustain and be able to maintain attention, are now being suppressed. And what takes over is the other areas of the brain that make the child try to resist sleep, becoming very impulsive, very... Uh, emotionally uh, unstable very uh, feisty very and then you know the child after uh, they fall asleep and everything is wonderful but imagine that every day every day every night you snore you wake up 20 30 50 100 times you don't remember any of those there are three seconds four seconds five seconds we do that all, all of our lives. We do that in a normal way in order to keep our systems going. But if you do it excessively, like kids that have snoring or adults, it's like having a phone call every five minutes, 10 minutes. You wake up, nobody answers. You go back to sleep. Now, except that you wake up to breathe, you don't wake up to anybody else calling you. It's your own call from your own throat, from your own breathing. And so at, at the end, when you wake up in the morning, I don't think that you're a pleasant person. And how do you expect a child to be a pleasant child? How do you expect them to go to school and listen to the teacher? How do you expect them to pay attention, to learn when they have not been able to sleep very well? They have had what we call fragmented or disrupted sleep. And on top of it, we know now from a lot of experiments that we and many others have done that if the oxygen levels are not good, in other words, they go down, The brain is very hungry, very thirsty for oxygen. And so these brain cells will suffer, and some of them will start dying. And when they start dying, you start losing brain cells, you start losing IQ, you start losing the ability to learn, the ability to memorize, to do all the things that we need. And so that brain that is so vulnerable, remember, you need more sleep because you're a child. You need more sleep because you're an adolescent now that brain is going to suffer even more. It's more vulnerable, more susceptible to these changes. And so you start losing all these brain cells in specific areas of the brain that are particularly uh, labile or unstable. And therefore you may start losing IQ. And so we have done studies and others have done in all over the world where they showed that on average, if you have moderate or severe sleep apnea, you may lose up to eight IQ points. Now, What does that mean? Well, all of us on average, the average IQ is 100. Okay? So, but we all think that our kids have IQs of 200. So, if you were to lose eight IQ points in a child with an IQ of a genius, nobody would notice. But if the majority of the children are born with an IQ of 100 and you lose eight points, that makes a huge difference in school performance, in academic performance, and so on. And so, It is important to remember. One, the brain is much more vulnerable because we our children need more sleep, it's vulnerable to disruption, and it's vulnerable to lack of oxygen. And these are two of the situations that are generated, created by the presence of snoring and of sleep apnea. And so sleep apnea is a serious condition that can lead to significant deficits, to significant problems, both in behavior. But also in intelligence, in cognitive performance, and ultimately, in the ability to succeed in life, because uh, we need as much brain as we can and as much intelligence and, and education as we can in order to succeed in life.:
0: And can that lead on now to if the parent um, has the correct diagnosis and they've worked with their medical GP sleep uh, uh, physician, et etc? And and the diagnosis comes back as sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea. What, what are the current treatment uh, opportunities available for their children?
1: Well, uh, like everything, what we aim to accomplish with every child is to deliver the best personalized treatment with the minimum risk involved in that treatment, okay? So always we need to think of risk and benefit of what we do and to take away the disease that is causing consequences. But at the same time, do that with a minimal risk, with a reduction of risk associated with it. At this point in time, when depending on the severity of the disease, uh, those that have moderate to severe disease, if they have enlarged tonsils and adenoids, the first line of therapy is usually to take those tissues away. In other words, to do a surgery that will remove the tonsils and will take away some of the larger adenoids that occupy and block some components of the airway. Now, that does not mean that it will be the only treatment that is needed. Uh, a proportion of these children will completely normalize their sleep, but others will not. And so we will get back to that in a second. For children with milder conditions, we may, for example, use, instead of doing surgery, we may use, anti-inflammatory therapy that is given as sprays to the nose or uh, other treatments and this will be guided by the sleep specialist or and the gp and then there are need to see what other contributors may be there for example let's say that the mandible is not very well developed so you may need to do through orthodontic therapy or through other therapies that are done by specialized dentists that are specialized in sleep medicine to do the expansion of the airway in order to facilitate the growth of that airway to its maximum potential so that the child can breathe and have no no evidence of this obstructed breathing that is affecting all these functions and growth and quality of life. By the way, I should indicate that the quality of life in children that suffer from sleep disorder breathing is markedly affected. And to give you a perspective, it is the equivalent of children that suffer from cancer on chemotherapy. So it's not a joke. In other words, the quality of life of a child that has sleep apnea is equivalent to that of a child with cancer receiving chemotherapy. That is not a joke. Now, except that we would say, oh my God, the child with cancer, poor kid, you know, suffering through the chemotherapy and all the side effects. And of course, their quality of life is going to be terrible. And yet we do not realize that the child that we have at home and that supposedly is fine, except that they snore and go to, and, and have sleep, sleep apnea, is actually having the same impact uh, on their quality of life. So coming back to therapy, there are multiple inst- in instances in which there needs to be a multidisciplinary Care. And so, as I indicated, for moderate to severe, probably taking the tonsils and adenoids is going to be the first line of therapy, but that does not imply in any way that all of this will be solved. So, it is always good to follow up. And then, if there is what we call residual sleep apnea, or in the children with more milder that does not respond to the initial intervention that is anti inflammation, then As I indicated, you may want to do a rapid maxillary expansion. You may want to train the muscles of the airway so what we call myofunctional therapy. You may want to do some degree of, for those that have their mandible that is not very well developed and small, you may need to do a more aggressive therapy. And we have, for example, babies that are born with certain conditions that their mandible is very small. And so those really, just as a life, uh, um, life-saving procedure, they may need to have expansion of the mandible using very sophisticated surgical techniques. And so the overall range of treatments that is provided is becoming intensively expanding. And I think that it is really the collaborative multidisciplinary care that is very essential in order to personalize because each child is different. The contribution of the different elements that leads to this breathing disorders when they're asleep needs to be tailored to the exact reasons for which they suffer such that at the end the result will be the, the one that we want. That the child will be able to breathe uninterrupted with high quality of their sleep and without an, having any of the things that we talked about. No, no reductions in oxygen, no elevations of carbon dioxide, no excessive work of breathing during the night, and certainly not all the awakenings that then lead to this disrupted sleep. All of these together are elements that we do not want to see in any child in order to promote their well-being, their quality of life, their growth, their idealized and uh, optimal growth, the normal development of their brain to their maximum potential, and everything else that could be affected in the process of growing as a a normal
0: child. um, I mean, it's very topical. In in Australia, uh, recent stats have shown we have one of the highest rates of teenage suicide than any other country in the world. Uh, We also have per capita some of the highest uh, Usage of Ritalin. Um, if if um, a child in Australia or a parent of a child is told your your son has ADHD um, and put on medication, should they be before accepting that diagnosis at least having a proper sleep study, uh, or what what is the best way to evaluate the genuine ADHD versus possibly the very similar symptoms associated with uh, poor sleep?
1: Yeah, the distinction is very important here. And so there are multiple uh, professional uh, scientific associations that have issued a set of guidelines based on very serious studies, whether it's the American Academy of Psychiatry. I'm sure that in Australia, there are equivalent uh, guidelines that have been issued by very uh, knowledgeable uh, individuals, uh, the um, the same is true for the American Academy of Pediatrics and many other associations, professional associations that have issued a set of guidelines of a menu, if you wish, a pull-down menu of how to evaluate a child that has symptoms of hyperactivity and inattention. And so let's say that uh, after this very thorough and comprehensive assessment, which is not cannot be done by a GP, and I'm going to emphasize this, um, it requires a neuropsychologist, a developmental neuropsychologist, extensive testing, the psychiatrist, the reports from the school, reports from the parents, an observation period. And so this is a very time consuming and extremely onerous, very expensive. And so it is usually reserved for the more serious or the more severe cases, rather than be applied to the 8 or 10% of all children all children that present with this inattention hyperactivity. So, only a very selected few actually go through all this process and ultimately are diagnosed with true ADHD. So, when we take the true ADHD, what we call the real severe ADHD, then the prevalence or the amount, the percentage of these children that have sleep disorder breathing is the same as the general population. Okay? Mm-hmm. But that's where the problem lies, because when you have other symptoms that are not as severe and your diagnosis of ADHD is based more at the GP level, and this is not a criticism to the GPs, it's just that it's, or they're overworked, there would be not enough child psychiatrists and child psychologists and everybody else to do all children. And so parents come and says, you know, my child, the teacher said that he's not attentive, the grades are coming down. And um, if you ask those that are before they're put on Ritalin or some of the stimulants, what we call psychostimulants, about 30 to 40 percent will actually snore. So asking a very simple question, does your child snore when you have these behavioral issues, would automatically lead to a a very significant proportion of these children at least going to a sleep specialist, getting Studied and see whether they have any type of sleep disorder breathing. And if they do, treatment of those conditions will, in the vast majority of cases, improve on the symptoms of inattention and and hyperactivity without necessarily having a need for medication, or if they need a medication, to have much less medication and be able to control the symptoms in a much better way. So, what I'm trying to say is that the presence of sleep disorder breathing is one element that parents should be alerted to because before you start medication or if the child does not really respond very well to the medication and the child snores, you should make sure that one, you check for the presence of disorders of breathing in sleep and two, that you treat them because this could be at the cause of some of the issues of behavior or inattention, or hyperactivity that your child is suffering from, or the lack of response to the medication, the psychostimulant medication that your child has been put on, but nonetheless, it doesn't seem to have the desirable effect. So for all these reasons, we need to remember that sleep, or the actual lack thereof, or poor quality of the sleep, can be determining factors for behavioral manifestations, behaviors such as inattention and hyperactivity, which then may be confused as being part of the ADHD when in fact they are the cause of these symptoms. And when you solve the sleep problem, you eliminate or at least markedly improve the behaviors to the point that you may obviate, you may preclude the need for putting many of those kids on the medications that otherwise they're going to be on.
0: And could I just bring up the topic of sleep latency. So say a child doesn't necessarily have poor sleep. When they get to sleep, they sleep soundly, they wake up uh, quite um, uh, refreshed. Uh, they don't have daytime sunlifts, but they just have the difficulty getting to sleep. Uh, any suggestions where a parent goes in that regard? So they put their child to sleep, they come back an hour later. the child's still awake. Uh, uh, I know some people, of nowadays self-subscribed melatonin, uh, etc. What, what would you recommend for parents who have that sort of child?
1: So uh, first of all, uh, you're not alone. <laughs> uh, as a parent of a child who has uh, what we call bedtime resistance or difficulty falling asleep, these are very frequent issues, and more than fifteen to twenty percent of children at one time or another have uh, these symptoms. We actually, uh, along with one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Lisa Medali, uh, we have put a book for parents, uh, which is uh, quite cheap, uh, called uh, "Putting Putting uh, uh, Bad Problems to Sleep. Um, uh, because we give scenarios that uh, really many of the parents will relate to and provide a set of guidelines as to each one of these scenarios, as to what, is the, what are the things that parents can do Uh, in order to at least troubleshoot this problem and find a solution in the majority of cases. Now, uh, because of what we see is a lot of confounders. The first is uh, we start with uh, the baby. The baby cries, we lift the baby, we shake the baby, we rock the baby, we cuddle the baby. Uh, Well, the baby uh, needs to learn self-soothing. And, yes, I'm not saying that we should uh, do what with Dr. Ferber, Uh, Dick Ferber at at Harvard many years ago, advocated for what has been termed uh, uh, as a a more nickname, uh, ferberizing your baby, in other words, letting them to cry until they finally fall asleep. We do not advocate for that any longer. We believe that there are much better ways of bringing, as a positive reinforcement, reinforcement, what is going to be helpful to the baby and not associate a traumatic uh, separation. to? But we can establish presence without necessarily lifting the baby. We can put a reassuring hand on the baby, but without lifting. And babies will progressively learn learn that uh, if uh, you're there and then you're at the door and then they learn how to do it on their own. And this self-soothing is a very important facet of teaching children or babies how to Assume sleep on their own without the need of parents. Now, there are children that are more anxious. There are children that have a variety of conditions. For example, if you uh, are exposed to screens, today it is very frequent, iPads, TVs, uh, telephones, computers, all these emit a lot of blue light. And these, the, what these kids are doing, what these children are doing, is engaging in a variety of games that can be quite stimulating. Well, I mean, if you are in, uh, having a great deal of fun, it is very difficult now to settle down and suddenly automatically just by virtue of, okay, kids, time to go to bed, and now let's go sleep. Well, uh, sorry, uh, it doesn't work this way. So there must be a very, what we call, soothing routine, uh, a settling down routine that needs to be implemented. We call this sleep hygiene. And it needs to be aligned with the circadian clock in which our children need to live. So first, I I said routine, and that is critically important. Uh, In other words, a routine means that every day is the same or every time is the same. So if you one day go to sleep at 6 p.m. and the other go at uh, at 11 p.m., that is a very bad habit because you're disorienting the whole system of the child on when the actual bedtime is. So it is very important to be very consistent, to be very regular, to do things in a very regular fashion. You have your shower or your bathtub, you have your your meal, you have a book and a story. You put maybe a weighted blanket or something that the child likes to have a, a little toy or a, a stuffed animal or whatever it is. The environment that is conducive, the temperature is not too hot, not too cold. There's no need for lights in the room and you create that environment, and that environment is consistent. It's always at the same time, always following the same routine. These children will, their body, their systems will learn how to go to sleep. If you have very erratic, very disorganized lifestyle, one day you go like this, tomorrow we're gonna do an exception. After that, you go to sleep in the sofa, the next time you sleep in the bed, the last time you put in front of the TV, and this is normal modern life, I'm not criticizing, I'm not saying anything. So how do you expect a child to learn a routine and be as accurate as a clock so that finally the parents can go to sleep if you do not advocate to create that routine that they need in order to be as predictable as possible? And so we need to think of those terms. Remember that younger children, even though they may not be able to fall asleep whenever they need to, but they are going to catch their disease. They will take their naps, they will do... But it's the parents that are going to suffer. Because at the end, you have your obligations of going to work, you want to have your evening. And so if, you, if your child is not allowing you to sleep through the night, wakes up in the middle of the night and seeks attention because they cannot sleep soon, because they cannot go back to sleep on their own and come to your bed and wake you up and start crying and doing all that, you are going to be as a parent, the one who is disrupted. And next day you're the one I don't want to talk to because the child will have caught up with their Z's at whatever time. And so they will do what they need to do. But you as a parent are going to carry all this chronic sleep deficit, which is going to make you a very uh, grumpy person to say the least. Let me put it this way and difficulty functioning emotionally taxed and And so, and we know the frazzled parents that come very often to our clinics because their child did not go through the appropriate training and routine that ultimately enabled them, one, to fall asleep, and second, to soothe themselves back to sleep when they wake up in the middle of the night, which is all the children do that, all of us do that.
0: Dr. Gzalt, if I have time for just one last uh, question. Um, in Australia, uh, when the original diagnosis is made of uh, sleep apnea, the common treatment is um, uh, CPAP therapy. And I know when Christian Goubenor, uh visited Australia and addressed our uh, sleep study, uh, uh, sorry, our, our sleep society, um, he was quite adamant that a child should be taken off CPAP as soon as possible because of the long-term consequences are possibly associated with facial growth. Do you have any comments on the role of CPAP in this situation and uh, duration? And if so, how can a child be weaned off CPAP?
1: So. Um... Um, So first of all, uh, CPAP is reserved for a subset of children that do not respond to the other measures that we talked about. Uh, Those children um, will require CPAP for as long as their breathing is obviously affected during their sleep. So uh, our aim is to shorten that period of time as much as possible. Let's say that if the child is obese, to make sure that we provide guidance on exercise, physical activity, diet, and guidance so that together uh, this child will benefit from potentially reducing their weight. And if the weight is one of the contributors to the sleep apnea, then make sure that the the CPAP can be stopped as soon as possible. Similarly, if you're going through an orthodontic therapy or through other elements, which take time, that once the airway has, has grown and developed, maybe it's possible to reduce the CPAP and to stop it altogether. So these are things that we test on usually on a six-month or annual basis, and depending on the conditions and the time, uh, we will do whatever is necessary to stop CPAP in the majority of children as soon as that is allowable. And the sleep study without CPAP shows us that the breathing is normalized and that therefore the risk is not there anymore and the need for the CPAP is not there.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your uh, time this morning. Um, uh, I'm pleased to say that as of last week, Australia is now finally open for international travel. We've been shut down for a long time. We would love to have you address our Sleep Association. I know um, it's very, very difficult to book you in advance, but I'm hoping that we will see you in Australia because uh, the research you've done, the information you've uh, given not just for professionals but also for the parents is is, is world-renowned. And, uh, and I think it's uh, brought to the forefront uh, for everyone the importance of treating these children uh, early so uh, that they don't um, have, as you, you said in the past, this um, this catch-up uh, period of time or the loss of the neurons, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we we look
1: forward to uh, seeing you down under
0: (laughs) as soon as possible.
1: I look forward to it as well. Thank you very much for having me and see you soon. Thank you very much, Dr. Gossard. Bye-bye. Thank you for
0: listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.